guys, Psychology Nerds, and welcome to Why We Get Mad, a special series brought to you by the Psychology and Stuff podcast out of Phoenix Studios at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. I'm Ryan Martin, author of the book, Why We Get Mad, and I am here without my usual co-host, but with my friend, Sammy Elderfeeser. How's it going, Sammy? It is going wonderful. How about you, Ryan? It's going okay. It's going okay. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what's going on. Just Kids okay. are yeah. You know, it's, what's weird is that both my kids are at camp this week. And oh. so this is actually, and since they were virtual all year, I am now in a house that is way emptier than it has been for a while. So that part's been kind of weird. Oh, I bet. Yeah. A change from the normal, which is already not quite normal, but yes. your new normal. Yes. Cause we've been, um, I mean, like we've been having lunch together every day tonight. One of my kids isn't even going to be home for dinner. Like I got to go pick him up late after dinner. He's eating dinner at camp. So yeah, it's oh a my goodness. whole different ball game. I know that's probably not unusual for a lot of other people, but it's unusual for, uh, for us right now. Well, it's a silver lining of COVID, right? That you guys had to sit down and eat all your meals together when in the, I feel like in today's age, we don't really do that anymore. People don't value that because there's other stuff yeah. to get done, other places to go, got to bring them to practice or dance or whatever. That is absolutely true. Um, that we were, we, we spent, I mean, it, I mean this in a good way. We spent an awful lot of time together over the last year and it really, or last year and a half, including, like you said, most meals, um, you know, including lunches, which we hadn't gotten to do. So it's definitely, um, it, I do think that has been a silver lining, which is not to say I'm not, also happy to get out of it. I'm happy that they're off to camp and having fun, but mm-hmm. it is, uh, it's definitely leading to a change. Very cool. I would like to bring up something that I saw that was very cool. Please do. I was scrolling through Instagram the other day and what do you know? I see Buzzfeed has a post and it is an article about you. All that, about is, you. that is true. Did you really just discover it via Buzzfeed Instagram? Yeah. Is that? Oh, wow. Okay, cool. Yeah, I follow them because they post, I mean, sometimes I hate the stuff they post, to be honest. It, it's a wide range, but sometimes they have interesting stuff and good stuff, but I did not expect to see your face there. And then bam, there you are. I, I like had a triple check and go to their page. I was like, is this real? They really did an article on Ryan. This is awesome. Yeah, that was really fun. And I shout out to Victoria, the author of that article. She, I got to talk to her actually a while ago. Um, uh, for that interview. And she's really, really smart and really fun to talk to. It was great. But they they called me a while back and said, or she called me a while back and said, we want to talk specifically about like a, a relatively short series I did on TikTok of uh, posts about how to deal with angry people. And um, so, yeah, we she, she wanted to interview me about that, which was really cool. And so, and it's, I, I will admit the part that's, but kind of fun is that I've, I've gotten a lot of people reaching out based on that. Like, so a handful of people sending me emails or, or messages via um, Instagram or, or TikTok or whatever. So it's been fun. Yeah. I love that. It's getting more of a, more attention to your TikTok and the types of things you post on there. And that makes me really excited because I think that information is so helpful and it's just right at people's fingertips now. And usually you'd have to go and sit down in your class to learn that kind of th- like that kind of stuff, you know, and now it's just right there on one of our social media apps. It's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I will say, and I can't remember if I've said this here or not, but, you know, honestly, when it comes to one of the things I like about TikTok 
has been one, it, it really does feel like better than any other app for me. I've been able to sort of share information with people and, you know, whether it's recent research or anger management tips or things like that, but, and that part's really cool. But honestly, the, the part I really like is I, I get a feel for what people are interested in. I get a feel for what people's lives are like. Um, you know, I've been having a lot of conversations with people on TikTok about things like, um, forgiveness as it relates to trauma. And this is not something that I, I really had a good understanding for kind of the lived experiences of people who, I mean, I, I've had, especially childhood trauma. I've, I've worked with veterans mm-hmm. and have a sense of, of kind of their experiences, but not, not like this. And so hearing really from people about kind of some of the challenges they face has been really eye-opening. I feel like I'm learning a ton. Uh, from from people in the process, which has been great. It's super cool. Well, I love it. And thank you very much. And thanks for bringing it up. So I, I should mention too, this is actually a nice segue into our, our guests today, because one of the things he talks about um, is the the impact psychologists kind of make in, in, to, uh, on the public and whether or not we're really connecting with the public in the way we need to. Um, or whether or not we're, we're just speaking to other researchers. And so um, I think, you know, we have a history of just talking to other researchers. And one of the things I've been trying to do, whether it's this podcast or the blog or TikTok, is try and connect with, um, you know, the people who need uh, these services. So let's get into our conversation with him, if we can. Today, I am talking with an absolute legend in the study of anger. He is now retired, but he was once a professor at Hofstra University, where he chaired the psychology department, was the director for the PhD program in clinical psychology, and was the director of the Institute for the Study and Treatment of Anger and Aggression. His major research and clinical interests around the understanding and treatment of adult anger episodes, and he has more than 200 scholarly contributions, including six books, many book chapters and articles, uh, and presentations at scientific and professional meetings. Please welcome Dr. Howard Casanova. Howard, thank you so much for being here. You know, I know I just said this to you off air a little bit, but I want to tell you that this book, uh, Anger Disorders, which I know is is one of your earlier books, uh, was a really, really influential book for me. And so it was one that when I was a, a graduate student, I read it's it's frankly never very far away from me um, when I'm when I'm doing work because I go back to it all the time. Um, and what I want to do is, I guess, just Thank you for your work, first of all, but then just kind of pick your brain a little bit in this episode and talk uh, talk about some things. So I guess my first question for you is, where did your interest in anger come from? Well, that, that's a very interesting question. I, I would say it comes from two parts. One is, as, as the psychoanalyst used to say, everything comes from your mother. <laughs> <laughs> and partly it comes from my mother. My mother was, depending upon your definition, an angry woman, but her anger was verbal. So she would just kind of shout or scream at me or my father or my brother, you know, why did you do that? But there was never any linkage to behavior. You know, it, it, it's, it's not like she would then throw things or hit anybody. And I became interested in the linkage between 
verbalizations about anger, anger, angry verbalizations, and motor behavior, and the discord, or disjunction between those. Huh. My, my, my second, and then you can ask me more, but my second uh, interest is when I went into private practice in it was about now 1971 or something like that, um, what I discovered was a lot of my patients were angry at each other. They were yelling and screaming and putting each other down. And I had had almost no training in dealing with their anger. The only training I had was the physiology of emotions. And so if you go back then, right, you know, you spoke about heart rate and sweating and pupillary response to light, but that didn't help me as a practitioner at all. So I became interested. Wow. And so, um, some of your early work then was really about, I mean, a lot of your work across your career has really been about sort of clinical applications to this. In some ways, it feels like what, you, what you've done is sort of provide the, the information you wished you'd had uh, early mm-hmm. on when you were doing therapy. So a question that is often asked of me, and I never feel great about answering it, is are we angrier now? And when I say we, are Americans angrier now? than they once were. What do you think about that? Yeah, it's a very interesting question. I've been asked it many times, as I'm sure you have. Um, You know, maybe I'll answer it in two ways. One is, luckily, I'm old. (laughs) That means I can look back upon, you know, a, a number of years. I can't look back upon, however, what Steven Pinker looked back on in his book, The Better Angels of Our Nature where he looked back like to the 1500s, where basically he was looking at aggression and he concluded that we were much less aggressive today than we used to be. But that was, you see, it's a definition, right? So it's, what is anger? You know, is anger aggression or is it something very different? And of course, I think it's something very different. Mm -hmm. Um, But what I can do is go back to oh, I want to say maybe thinking about the 1950s, 40s, 60s. So if you remember then, women particularly were supposed to be happy when they got a new vacuum cleaner, you know, or if their husband took them, on a, bought them, took them out for dinner. Women were subservient, and I think that they had a lot of anger in. So think about that time. Everybody was repressed. You know, if you were gay, you were not supposed to say it. If you were physically handicapped, you're supposed to hide in the closet. <laughs> if you're a woman, woman, you're supposed to be happy with whatever your husband tells you is okay. So there was a lot of anger in people. You know, it was festering. I think now we have much less anger in and we have much more anger out. So think about the LGBT community or Black Lives Matter or the Grey Panther movement. Now, all of this pent-up anger from, I'll say maybe from the mid-1950s to now, it's all exploding outwardly. Mm-hmm. I don't think we can really say much more than that, can we? Yeah, that's a really, really interesting way of looking at it. And what do you think is kind of opened the door to those, to that outward expression? Why has that shifted? Well, you know, now you're talking about cultural shifts, obviously, (laughs) and that's very hard. You know, we always go back to technological advances, uh, 
needs in society. You know, the, the reality is we eventually, we needed the Tuskegee Airmen. We need LBTQ people to help serve in society. Oh, oh, when, when World War II, I guess, came around and uh, we needed women as men were going off to war. So you have those societal changes that cause revolutions. Right, that paved the way for, for different types of expression in different communities. That is, right. that is fascinating. So I wanna, I wanna revisit what you said about, um, uh, about your mom and the difference between motor expressions and verbal expressions. Can you tell me more about that? Sure. Um, the other thing I'd have to link it to is Al Ellison, Rational Emotive Behavior Therapy. You know, that uh, feel, that, that form of psychotherapy was originally rational therapy. Then it became rational emotive therapy. Then it became rational emotive behavior therapy, which is what people talk about now. Um, but I always thought he was wrong by going from rational emotive therapy to rational emotive behavior therapy because I think the relationship between cognitive distortions and emotions is very strong. But I think the relationship between cognitive distortions and behavior is rather weak. So I may, as you well know, I may be saying to myself, you know, I have two flat tires. This is really awful and terrible. I can't stand it. But whether or not I will throw the wrench at somebody who's standing by will be determined by whether there's a policeman right near me, not by my cognitions. So th th that's really been so fascinating for me. The where does behavior fit in to the um, stimulus response chain? Right. Yeah, that is something that I remember. So I did my dissertation on, on, the, the thoughts we have when we're angry. Mm -hmm. And um, I remember actually at, a, at one of my job talks talking about this and someone saying, you know, some of these correlations between the thoughts and behaviors are relatively weak. And, mm -hmm. and I think it's true. I mean, I think that it's because I think there is a, a much stronger, to your point, I think there's a much stronger relationship between thoughts and feelings than there are thoughts and behaviors. Because um, right. there's, there's just another step there in our environment uh, might, might intervene that, that way. But, you know, in our field, it's very interesting how there are these, obviously, cultural shifts and particular areas that become very popular and those that fade away. So, as you know, the most popular form of therapy around these days is CBT, right? Mm -hmm. Cognitive Behavior Therapy. And one of my former students, actually, Ray DiGiuseppe, who's a very well-known anger researcher, but also very well-known in um, the Association for Behavioral and Cognitive Therapists, and he says, where's the B in CBT, right? <laughs> that we have become a kind of CT, cognition, behavior, uh, focused and, and right. organization. And behavior has kind of fallen down. I think it's because of what you said, the linkage is not that strong. <laughs> right. So let's talk a little bit about Anger and practice, um, because I know you've spent a lot of your time as a teacher, but you've also, as you mentioned, had a clinical practice through much of your career. And uh, I want to 
talk a little bit about, you know, the divide between kind of anger research and anger practice. Mm -hmm. What do you think about that? Do you think researchers are doing what they need to do to help practitioners? No. (laughs) (laughs) I think think researchers are doing what they need to do to help themselves. (laughs) And by that, I mean, most researchers are in university settings. They have to produce to get tenure and move up the ranks. And the way in which to do that is to do studies where basically you have college students, let's say, report on their anger. You know, many of the early studies were simply self-report studies of women in, in women's colleges reporting on what kind of anger they felt over the weekend, early studies. But researchers, as a rule, do not have a lot of clinical experience. Um, That's the real problem. So I think that researchers have produced a wonderful body of knowledge that is primarily descriptive. Uh, Think about it. We can catalog the triggers for anger. We can catalog the uh, irrational ideas or cognitive distortions. We can catalog the internal experiences. We can catalog the ways in which it's expressed. We can catalog outcomes, what happens when you're angry. Great, we've cataloged that. But now you have some person in your office and that person is saying a few things. A person is saying, I don't get angry very often. I'm not angry. There's nothing wrong with me. Yeah, I'm angry, but everybody gets angry. My father was angry. My mother was angry. So they're in denial, right? And researchers have not helped clinicians very much in that arena. So my answer was a little sharp and I said, no. (laughs) No, I can see that. I mean, I've been long wondered about the application. We've seen some of this, but but not much, but the application of some of the, the stages of change work to, uh, to anger specifically, or even some of the you know, motivational interviewing and, and approaches like that. We've seen some of that, but I think you're right that trying to, you know, when I did work as a clinician, I oftentimes ran into exactly what you're talking about. Someone who was there didn't want to be, was there because someone had sent them there um, or, a, right. or a partner had said, I need you to go see someone. And you know, trying to help them see uh, that w- the ways in which they were they were angry was tricky. Your 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 thought you brought up a, a case that I had. I was going to comment on it for a moment. So I was seeing a couple in their fifties who were having marital difficulties, and they were they were really arguing with each other. And this was about eight o'clock at night, and I was seeing them for a while. And one day I said, "Well." where are you going after the sessions now nine o'clock at night and they said well we're going to a ouija board reader who's going to tell us the future (laughs) and you see i said now how do i deal with the fact that i'm a scientist i have all these facts in my head right and they're really not interested in the facts as much as they are magic so science hasn't helped the clinician with that kind of problem very much yeah that is interesting. So I'm curious, we, um, you know, I, whenever we talk about, whenever I talk about anger with people, I notice two things. One is, you know, we, we both, we've already said we, we 
we think of it as an emotion, right? We've got anger, the feeling state, the emotion separate from the behaviors associated with it. But then we also talk about angry people. And when we do so, it, it feels like we're describing it as a personality trait. And I was wondering if you could take a moment to talk a little bit about uh, like sort of angry people, the, what do they look like to you as far as the, the clinical work you've done, the research you've done? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you, you're asking, is there an angry person or a person with an angry trait? So the question is, what's your definition of a trait? And I would call it cross-situational stability of behavior, right? Cross-situational stability of behavior. That the same behavior exists across many, many situations, many environments, and over time. Mm -hmm. Now, definitely there are people who respond quickly and are prone to put other people down. And we could call that a trait because it does persist almost over the lifespan and in, in situations. But in the end, it's an abstraction. So sure, there are people that we can predict are likely to get really angry uh, when they're cut off in traffic or when their wife spends too much money or their husband goes on a drinking binge or something like that. But it's an abstraction that I think that doesn't help as a clinician, doesn't help that much. The, what we're trying to do is to change that cross-situational stability of behavior by, for example, saying, is this event really terrible and awful and horrible, and can you stand it? And if we can, if, if we can get that person to, to develop a more rational philosophy of life, right? Nothing is really as terrible and awful no, no reason to make throughout my life a, mount, a mountain out of a molehill. Um, I'm far more competent than I'm trying to pretend to be. If, if, if we can change that kind of self-talk, I, I think we can reduce the anger in, in various situations. Well, and, and you know, the, the thoughts you described there, it's not just anger we're reducing in those situations too, right? It's a host of, of potentially problematic emotions. It's anxiety, it's sadness, it might be guilt, uh, and, and so on. Um, so thinking about that, because we talk about, sometimes we make the, make the mistake of, and I almost did it just there, of, of talking about sort of dysfunctional emotions versus not dysfunctional emotions. And, um, you know, we, we talk about anger having evolutionary value or offering an evolutionary advantage. And so with that in mind, you know, I guess how, in your mind, how does anger have an evolutionary advantage? And then how do you know the difference between sort of useful and normal anger, but also dysfunctional anger? Sure. Well, let me say, I probably agree with you and, and I, with the notion that all emotions have evolutionary advantage. They, if you go back to our past, they helped us survive, right? So with regard to anger, quite obviously, if we can, if we're being, if our, in our animal history, if our family, our animal family is being threatened and we kind of scream and yell and roar and make ourselves look bigger as many animals can, it makes the intruder go away. And that's, good. 
Uh, same thing if I look at young children. You know, if, if a young child is walking into the street and a bus is coming along, it's to the parent's advantage to scream at that child. Get out of the street and never go into the street again without holding mommy or daddy's hand. Because what we need there is one trial learning, right? We can't afford to do something over 50 or 100 trials. We have to get the child to um, manage the behavior immediately. So clearly there are advantages to uh, being angry. In the short term, you, you have to differentiate short and long term. In the short term, you can yell at your workers in industry and say, you know, I don't like your report, go back to your desk, redo it, and I want to see it by the end of the day. In the short term, the worker probably will comply. In the long term, the worker may quit, right? right. Same, thing, same thing with your children, right? You scream at your children, you may get what you want, you know, clean up your room, do the dishes, whatever, take out the dog whatever it may be, mm-hmm. you, you get short-term compliance and in the long-term, your child abandons you. So. Yeah, and in thinking about that, one of the things that just popped into my head is how um, to, the, to the angry person in that instance, they see the immediate benefit, right? It's, the uh-huh. anger is rewarded immediately, right? The person complied. My, my child did what I wanted because I yelled. My... Uh-huh. Uh, my, my employee went back to their desk and fixed this problem because I yelled. And so, but like any consequences, those long-term ones uh, are harder to, to recognize or harder to, to see or experience. So, so I guess what, that's one of the ways in which it's maladaptive. What are some of the other ways that we can think of anger as maladaptive? Well, I, I think for me, mostly it's that it causes bad poor interpersonal relationships. The data, I I think the way, I think the outcome that most people just don't consider is the effect on physical health. So we know very well that people who have been rated as high on various anger scales and who kind of blow up over the years are more prone to heart attacks, are more prone to strokes, Charlie Spielberg used to talk about them being more prone to cancer, where I think the data is not as clear. But the reality is that most of these illnesses are related to inflammation of the body. And anger also causes and produces inflammation of the body. So uh, that's one I think we have to give a lot more thought to. Absolutely. So with that in mind, especially I'm curious to hear your take on this as someone who's done a lot of clinical work here, what about anger in the DSM, right? It is Mm. by and large, it doesn't have uh, its own, well, I shouldn't say it, but it doesn't have its own sort of category in the diagnostic and statistical manual mental disorders, the way sort of depression or bipolar or many anxiety disorders do. Should it be, is that a problem for you as a clinician? Should it be better reflected? Well, you know, look, we've struggled with the DSM for years. People are notoriously unhappy with it, and yet we don't find a a better solution. Um, The reality is that the DSM has kind of singled out two emotions, uh, anxiety and depression, 
as worthy of having various categories. And they've ignored anger, and let's say they've ignored disgust. So if all of these emotions have evolutionary advantages, then we have to say, why are we just picking out two and not the others? I've never gotten an answer to that question. Uh, so yeah, it's a problem for me because as a researcher, you know, many grants are linked to DSM diagnoses. So without a DSM diagnosis, you can't get the grant. Um, as a clinician, it's, you know, these diagnoses become kind of popularized. So people say, I have an anxiety disorder. People don't really say I have an anger disorder or a disgust right. disorder. DSM has been notoriously unhelpful to practitioners. Yeah, and I, for a long time, I, it's really interesting to hear you put it that way. The sadness and anxiety or depression and anxiety, essentially, you know, because for a long time, I found myself really wondering why, you know, what are some, and I think there's a lot of reasons for that. And some of it's is probably its origin, but you know, why, why has it so consistently ignored anger, especially when the popular culture is so fascinated with anger, yeah. you know? I think one of the reasons is that anger uh, is kind of a moral emotion um, and people who are angry, we think, because anger is often, related to interpersonal violence, uh, bad relationships, et cetera. So we say, well, those people, they deserve to be punished. The people who are angry, the people who are screaming and yelling, causing disturbances and riots, we should lock them up in jail. But people who are anxious, oh, those poor babies, you know, they, they need our help. And depressed people certainly need our help. So there's a very different way of kind of look, looking at these yeah. Well, that's really interesting. I mean, really, in some ways, what you're saying is there's this sense of we believe that angry people should be able to control themselves in ways that people who are anxious or depressed aren't able to. You know, mm -hmm. that, that that is sort of one of the, the factors that anger is an emotion you can control, depression, anxiety, those are out of our hands, right? Those things happen to us. Right, right, right. Yeah. What's well, look, look at what we say to people. You know, you're angry, you're angry. Get a hold of yourself. Right. 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 Yep. <laughs> you should be able to just turn your anger right off. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. And I say this as someone who I use this term a lot, but we, we certainly use the phrase anger management more often than we use the phrase sadness management or <laughs> fear. You know, that, that, um, that that's a much more common phrase to suggest that there's something you can do about this one. So as we wrap up here, I'm curious about one, I guess, first thing I want to know is what stands out to you as the most important work you've done as a scholar? Well, that's kind of interesting. Um, I, I have a number of answers, I guess, <laughs> because I'm a college professor. I like to talk. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, th I, I think we did one study back 1995, I, I did with uh, Chip DeFrady from Central Connecticut State University. And we looked at the outcomes of what happens if we teach people to say, um, this is only unpleasant, I can stand it. Or this is horrible and terrible, I can't take it. Uh, you, you know, and we looked at the outcomes and it really supported rational emotive theory. That the reality was that 
if you talk to yourself in a rational, reasonable, sensible way, it does have benefits, no doubt. But my two other contributions, I think, is bringing scientific knowledge to the consumer. So, you know, our book, uh, uh, Anger Management for Everyone, mm -hmm. I think is trying to take everything that we've learned and put it in a self-help format because so many people who are angry won't go to a therapist, right? They, they, they're in that denial phase, but sometimes if you give them a book, we've gotten a lot of good feedback, you know? And I, I, think, I, I think the other thing I would just say is I've been fortunate enough to train many other prominent anger researchers. Um, I mentioned Brady Giuseppe before, well-known. Chris Eckhart at Purdue, Dennis Lechodolsky at Yale, Chip DeFrady at Central Connecticut. I mean, it, it's been very gratifying to, to see how their work, my, my ideas, have spread out to their work with children and intimate, intimate partner violence and other such areas. It's been very satisfying. Yeah, I have, a, I have a lot to say about both those answers. But um, so first, I just want to mention the book, because that's a relatively recent book, right? The Angry... Anger Management is for everyone. Yeah, 2019. Perfect. So congratulations on that. And we will make sure to link to it so people can uh, can get a look at it. But also right. just say, as someone who has studied the work of a lot of people you just mentioned, I mean, that is an extraordinarily impressive legacy of scholars. Right? I mean, the, the, the people you just mentioned are really, really something. And I would understand if some of our listeners didn't realize that because they're maybe not as, as cued into the uh, anger research world, but that's an impressive list. So that, that is definitely something to be proud of. Thank you. Um, and you've, and I can also say from personal experience, you've, you've influenced a lot of people who weren't uh, your immediate students uh, as well. So um, both, both me and my advisor, Eric Dolan uh, was someone who- Oh, really sure. He worked with Jerry Beffenbacher, right? Yes, he did. Yeah. Yeah, so, sure. Yeah, some really, really, um, yeah, Eric was, uh, is uh, a, a big fan of your, your work as well. So, um, all right, so a final question, and this is a self-serving one. As someone who's still out there researching anger, what are some of the big research questions that we have yet to answer? What are some of the things we still need to know? Well, that's interesting. I think the big one is we know very little about revenge. And people become angry, but I, I, I don't have these data uh, in my head at the moment, but we recently did a kind of review. There are very few really good revenge studies, right? What is it? What motivates it? How is it likely to be implemented, et cetera? I think the other is to go back to the concept of denial. You know, how do we overcome these people who are basically saying, no, I wasn't angry. Yeah, I... I I kind of smacked him, but he deserved it. <laughs> but I wasn't angry. And they say it in an angry tone, right? In an angry voice. I'd like to see us do some more work on denial and revenge to see if we can help people suffering with those problems. That is, and I suspect that some of that revenge literature is probably tied to at least maybe indirectly to some forgiveness literature as well, which would be really mm. interesting to think about. So, Absolutely. Um, well, Howard, I can't thank you enough for taking time to talk with me. Do you have anything you want to add uh, before we finish? Anything you want to say? No, I, no, I would say you just brought up the concept of forgiveness. And that's also 
very much a part of our program because I, I guess I will say this, <clears throat> you know, when, when, you're, when you're angry, you're, you may be angry at your husband or wife or child, and that's great. Then we have a whole series of techniques to help you. But when you're angry at somebody who's in prison and doesn't want to see you, or somebody who died, right? Uh, somebody that you can't get a hold of, then sometimes you have to go into forgiveness, right? And there've been many people now who have been just great role models. Uh, a woman named Eva Kaur, uh, who was uh, in the Nazi concentration camps and forgave the Nazis. <laughs> uh, we have an interview of a man who's, uh, who, whose son was murdered by a drug addict. And he forgives, uh, adult son, he forgives the murderer. And when the murderer comes out of prison, they establish a relationship to be helpful to each other. So it's, again, it's an area that's very important because you can't, sometimes you just can't meet with the person who you're angry with, right? Yeah, oh, wow. I really can't thank you enough. It's been fascinating talking to you, Howard. Um, thank you for uh, the work you've done. Thanks for talking with me today, okay? You betcha, thanks for having me. You bet. Now that we are done with the interview portion, we are going to move on to our question from TikTok. So today I have a question for you, Ryan, that I actually have had myself. Um, our listeners want to know, why did you decide to write your book? Oh, wow. That, um, so that is a good question. I, I will, you know, it, it's funny because it's been a goal for a, a really long time. Like I've, I've wanted to write a book since I, since I, I remember actually having a conversation with it about. Uh, sorry, a conversation with Dr. Regan Garung, who you know well, uh, when I first got to GB, um, so 16 years ago, about wanting to write a book like this. Um, you know, and so it's been a goal for a long time, but I, I haven't necessarily stopped and thought about why very often. Um, one of one of the reasons is honestly that I just I really love teaching. And in a lot of ways, writing this felt like an extension of that. It actually goes back to the TikTok thing too, that I really love teaching. And this is a, a, an extension of that. It's another way of kind of sharing information with people who wanna, wanna have it. Um, I think the, the interesting thing is I was actually really kind of resistant to the idea, maybe it's my background in counseling, but I was resistant to the idea of writing a self-help book for a long time. And I don't Why? know. Yeah, I mean, I think it's that I think it's that when you're trained as a counseling psychologist, I think in some ways I got the message that those books weren't real or they they didn't really help people or they you know mm -hmm. that it was a poor substitute for therapy and and I, it's not a substitute for therapy. I know that and I would never try and claim that. Um, but I think at some point I was talking to someone who said, you know, therapy isn't available to everyone. Like not everybody has access to that and. Um, you know, an accessible, low relatively low cost book. No, it's not gonna. It's not gonna be there as a as a solution for someone who has a serious, serious, serious anger problem. But for someone who's trying to get a, things figured out, it's a good resource for them. And that meant a lot to me. I, I think when I started thinking about it in terms of that, I started feeling like, yeah, this is 
um, this is a good thing to be able to do. Yeah, Definitely, and I will it. say that when I was reading your book, it made it brought me back to when I was in your class, um, Abnormal Psych, and although the content was very different, just the way it was written and the way I felt engaged, like I wanted to learn this, like I, I was craving it, it was really awesome, and you did not, like you, you found a way to keep humor in your book like you do in the classroom. Like I'm, I'm gonna say this now for everyone listening, if you don't care about anger or how to use your anger for positive change, you read it just for the footnotes. If only <laughs> just for the footnotes, please. It is worth it, I promise you. Oh, thank you very much. I appreciate that. It was, it's funny because, so my favorite author uh, is Mary Roach who wrote, uh, who's written, you know, Stiff and Bonk and Spook and Packing for Mars and all these amazing sort of uh, science nonfiction books. Mm -hmm. um, super, super brilliant. And one of the things I love about her, is she writes these really clever, fun, interesting footnotes. And so I, I did sort of essentially like take that idea from her and thought, in fact, people at work will tell you, I've been, a, I, I actually footnote our meeting minutes and things like that, just with like sort of silly jokes, things like things that can't go in the official minutes, but that I want to, to say at the time. So it's been mm -hmm. a way that I've been writing for a long time, inspired by Mary Roach. But here's what's funny is because one of the other authors I really love, she wrote her first book uh, a year ago, her name's Lulu Miller. And she wrote this, the book, um, Why Fish Don't Exist. It's really, really great. She only has one footnote in the entire book and she actually referenced it when she when she used it she said welcome to the only footnote in this entire book and so it was sort of funny because I was I was reading that while I was writing mine and I thought oh no if I made a terrible mistake <laughs> maybe I shouldn't have footnotes <laughs> oh no I love the footnotes I would be excited whenever I saw a sign that there was a footnote that I would have to like calm down and keep reading and not skip to it because I like I like when they're about your kids too especially ah. those always crack me up <laughs> very good well thank you for saying that I appreciate it so you know it, one last thing I'll say before we finish up here and that is um I wanted I wanted the book to be like class I really did. I wanted to combine science and storytelling and hopefully humor. And so I'm glad that people felt like it took them there because that's, as I was trying to figure out what my writing style was going to be, I kind mm -hmm. of settled on that's what I wanted to feel like. So I'm glad it did. It's definitely what shows through when you read it. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. So Sammy, thanks for everything this week. This has been really fun. It's always a joy to talk with you. That is all we've got this week. You can find me and ask questions at Anger Professor on social media, or you can visit my website, alltheragescience.com. Why We Get Mad is a special series from Psychology and Stuff in a production of Phoenix Studios at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. The executive producer is Ryan Martin, and the production manager is Kate Farley. Our audio production coordinator is Bill Salick. Our graphic designer is Kimberly Vlees. Special thanks to my guest, Dr. Howard Casanova. If you haven't already, please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. You can also head over to our website, uwgb.edu slash podcast, to check out past episodes of this and all our shows. I'm your host, Ryan Martin, and I'm here with Sammy Elterfeeser. Keep being amazing.